Welcome to the Principled Podcast, brought to you by LRN. The Principled Podcast brings together the collective wisdom on ethics, business and compliance, transformative stories of leadership, and inspiring workplace culture. Listen in to discover valuable strategies from our community of business leaders and workplace changemakers. Hello and welcome to another episode of LRN's Principled Podcast. My name is Ben DiPietro. I'm the editor of LRN's ENC Pulse newsletter. I hope you can find it and sign up. With me today is a very special guest, Florence Chung, Chief Engagement Officer of the Hetty Group, a community engagement strategy firm. She has 20 years of experience at the intersection of law enforcement and the community and has created multiple cross-sector partnership and engagement initiatives for organizations, including Fortune 500 companies such as Amazon, Ross Dress for Less, and Target. She has launched three new police foundations in partnership with business leaders and police departments to create platforms for community engagement and public safety. This work led her to create Police Foundation Partners, a heady group initiative that provides support and resources to a national network of police foundations to help them become the most effective bridge between communities and police for enhanced public safety. Florence has served on the board of directors of the Los Angeles Police Foundation, the New York City Police Foundation, the Los Angeles Regional Crime Stoppers, and the University of Southern California's Asian American Alumni Association. Yes, thank you for having me. Let's start by giving the listeners a little bit of your career path and journey and how you got to find this work and bringing together police and communities and companies, and then how you came about to be a part of the Hedy Group. So I started my career as a community organizer working for a nonprofit in Los Angeles. And when there was a school shooting incident, I convened elected officials, the school district, the police department, and parents that were obviously very upset about what happened. And it was then that I first got introduced to the value of working with various stakeholder groups when addressing societal problems. So after the nonprofit, I worked in city government, ventured into the corporate world, and Spent some time working in corporate social responsibility for Target, and they at the time had a very innovative approach to keeping their stores and employees and customers safe. And I worked under a philosophy that a company can do good in a community by investing in neighborhood safety. And there I developed Target's field strategy for how to partner with public safety agencies like police departments and emergency management officials and We gave grants to nonprofits and supported police community relations programs. So after I left Target, I launched the Hetty Group as a community engagement strategy firm, again, taking a multi-stakeholder approach to build what I call a connected public safety ecosystem as a way to create safer communities. And so since then, we've guided a lot of different companies in their engagement with the community and law enforcement And fast forward to today, seeing what's going on across the country has been tough. So the horrific death of Mr. George Floyd has started a necessary movement to fight racial injustice and toward police reform. And though it's a a tough road ahead, I am hopeful that the changes we'll see in the months and years to come will only make us stronger. You often talk about seven root causes that affect policing. Can you briefly describe each and how they frame this debate over police in the U.S.? What I've learned is that there are significant layers and complexities in policing, and therefore there is no real easy fix. You have to 
examine the root causes and really understand the problems before trying to find solutions. Otherwise, the solution that may sound like a good idea may not actually address the real root of the problem. So the seven root causes of policing can play out this way. So let's say we take an incident where an officer fires his weapon during an interaction with a suspect that ends in a death and it's captured on video and goes viral. And most everyone agrees when watching that, that it was inappropriate and an excessive use of force. And we ask why that incident occurred. So if we explore that root cause, number one, was it because that officer was poorly trained and didn't know how to properly de-escalate the situation, didn't really know how to apply the right tactics at the right moment. That's a training issue. Or number two, would these incidents not occur if the officers were hired from their own communities and there was more diversity in the department perhaps? Or are they hiring the wrong people in the first place? That's a recruitment and hiring issue. Or number three, maybe the excessive force was clearly not necessary in that incident, but after the investigation, it's revealed that it still technically falls within department policy and to the, I would say, disbelief of community members, there are no consequences for that officer, which means it could be a policy issue. Or number four, maybe the problem was that individual cop. He's a bad cop or a bad apple, as they say. Perhaps he himself is racist and and is biased, maybe has poor judgment, maybe has anger problems or lacks compassion as a human being, or some will say has a bully attitude hiding behind a gun and a badge. So that's a bad apple. Or five, is it a police culture issue that allows for all these things to happen without pressure of consequences or accountability? So, you know, policies and training can be thrown out the door when informal policies and training become stronger forces in everyday life within a department. So the maybe the problem is police culture. Or number six, so is, is, it, is it politics that got in the way of keeping that officer accountable? So we have elected officials and district attorney's offices and police unions. They all play a role and these variables make the situation really complex. So sometimes a police chief may want to bring reform and change policies, but the politics of it all makes it difficult to get done. And then lastly, the seventh root cause, I'll say, Ben, is it systemic racism that contributed to that incident? So systemic racism is a real issue. So if you look close enough at each of the six areas that I just mentioned, you'll find bias-based elements that need to be examined. So those are the seven. And I think most often it's some combination of all of the above. And those who are working in police reform understand the complexities better than I do. But I don't think the general public may see all these layers. And so at times we come up with maybe overly simplistic responses, what needs to be fixed or knee jerk reactions to coming up with solutions may that may not take into consideration these various layers and complexities within the world of policing. And I'll say on top of that, every every one of the 18,000 independent police departments we have in this country are dealing with different combinations of these root causes. So when we look for solutions, I think we need to take a thoughtful approach to address multiple areas because there's just no silver bullet solution. I think most people believe that the overwhelming majority of police are quote-unquote good cops and are trying to do the right thing. The question is they run up against this 
loyalty, this thin blue line, as it's known. And so the question for you is, if there are so many good ones and they outnumber the bad ones by this wide disparity, why would they stay silent when it only really serves to put them more at risk when they're on the street than they would be if they rooted those people out of the force? I've heard that question a lot. I've asked that question myself. I think, here are my thoughts on it. I think the policing profession has a very strong culture where they where they back each other up because they have a dangerous job and they have to rely on each other. And there's a sense of family within policing from what I've observed. But to answer the question of why good cops don't call out the bad cops, I think it's complicated. Sometimes it's department policies that provide latitude for officers, so it's tough to have them fired or prosecuted. And sometimes it's the police unions that make it challenging to hold officers accountable, and that gets into some politics. And then I'll go back to police culture. I know police executives that are reform-minded, that want to bring about change, and they do it through changes in policy and additional training. But sometimes it just doesn't stick. So we've all heard the saying, culture eats policy for breakfast, right? So new policies on a piece of paper may be overshadowed in daily practice, and it's due to to culture. So you can put police officers through hours of new training, but we have to make sure we're not just going for compliance, but we go for buy-in. So compliance alone to new training modules won't change if culture doesn't change with it. So the question becomes, how do we change police culture? If there are new policies saying that you have a duty to intervene and call out other officers for misconduct, how do we make sure cops feel protected from those repercussions so that they're not shamed and are actually applauded for calling each other out when there's wrongdoing? And how do we give police executives, the police chiefs, the tools, the skills, and the knowledge base to affect change management in their organizations that will actually shift police culture. I think those are some of the things that we have to think through and address. So there's this sense of loyalty, it sounds like, and you see it play out sometimes when an officer is arrested or disciplined, the other officers in that unit or that department will call in sick in our larger number or in that case in Buffalo where that whole unit just resigned. There were other issues there as well, I believe. But how does that hamper efforts to reform and recreate culture? And how can technology help to bring about more accountability? Police culture needs to change, but that may take some time and it takes effective change management strategies. But when it comes to police accountability, I think there are some tangible actions that departments can take. And if we're talking about technology, body-worn cameras have been widely adopted across the country. And its use is generally supported by officers and the public. And the expectation when this technology was rolled out was that there would be more transparency and accountability. And so nowadays there are cell phone cameras and CCTV cameras everywhere, right? So body-worn cameras on an officer provide one more angle to a situation, one more data point, if you will. The question is, is it working? So there have been many studies since the rollout of this technology, and in a 2017 study by the National Institute of Justice, their research concluded that the effectiveness of body-worn cameras is mixed, and you'll see a lot of those types of conclusions by research studies. And we expected this technology to have a significant impact on police officers' behavior 
and on how citizens view the police, but the evidence didn't show any statistically significant results. So there are some knowledge gaps in the body of research, and so more studies have to be done to ensure this technology can meet our expectations. But I think technology can address, can help address police accountability, but there has to be a comprehensive, multi-pronged approach to address policy and police culture as well. How does having access to military equipment exacerbate police culture than the, the bad sides of it? Should funding be cut for these areas or at least redirected away from that and to stop equipping police so that they look more like our military forces and more like police used to look? Many of us have seen the images of police with, you know, the full riot gear, helmets, long rifles, armored vehicles. And police departments have received a lot of criticism recently for approaching protesters in this way. I think showing up in the community with this type of equipment can contribute to the warrior mentality that we often find in police culture. And it certainly doesn't make citizens feel comfortable when seeing police in this manner, right? I don't think it's helpful and perhaps even necessary for police to show up with this level of equipment on regular calls. But there are scenarios when we do want our police to show up in full gear, and armored vehicles, such as, you know, when there's a high-risk situation or when they're responding to a mass shooting and terrorist attack, like the one in San Bernardino, California in 2015, or a high-risk manhunt or responding to criminals who are bringing strong firepower to the situation and you expect a shootout. We don't want our cops to be outgunned by criminals. Unfortunately, these situations are real, though thankfully they don't happen every week, but we want our cops out there with proper protective gear and equipment when they're responding to these types of incidents. So I don't think cutting funding is the solution, but when and how they deploy this serious equipment would be something to look at. So our communities are saying they don't want to see that as a regular everyday part of their police officers. They don't want to see it at protests. So then, I mean, I would say maybe we need more clarity and restrictions on when that type of equipment is deployed in our society rather than doing away with them, period. Seven years ago, Camden, New Jersey, disbanded its police department and created a new department in its wake. The effort seems to have been a success. Can that serve as a model for other cities looking for ways to change how their police operate? You know, Camden put into place a lot of what is part of the reform conversation today. So they started over, rehired all of their officers, did away with the police union, and they have unions now. But at the time when they were rehiring, not having unions gave them the flexibility in hiring the way that they wanted to and the rollout of new policies. And so they worked really hard to replace the department culture and pushed for a community oriented policing approach a guardian versus warrior approach. And Chief Thompson at the time talked about wanting his officers to identify more as being with the Peace Corps than being in the special forces. They also stressed access to social services and economic development, good schools, taking a more holistic approach to creating public safety. So many cities are having conversations about these very elements of change. So the question is, is it necessary to fully abolish a police department and completely start over from scratch in order to reform? 
So it worked for Camden, but we have to consider that they're a fairly small city and had a specific set of variables and sequencing of events that made it possible for them to take that route. But that process may be difficult to replicate elsewhere. I mean, I I can't imagine large cities like Philadelphia or New York City being able to take that route. So I think it's too simplistic to say Camden started over, so we can too. Chief Thompson and Camden had the benefit of starting from scratch. I think that is that is an ideal situation, right? But in reality, most police departments won't have that luxury. So if a police department can't start from a blank slate, I mean, they can still take those proven practices from Camden and apply them in their own cities and address those root causes that I mentioned. Uh, Camden was able to address recruitment and hiring by rehiring everyone and build a new culture and mindset while at it. And uh, the chief had the political will and support to get it done. So Camden's model, definitely worth studying and then asking ourselves what parts of that would work in my city and what wouldn't. So I think cities need to take through, kind of think through what the best process is to reach their reform objectives and which means taking a hard look at the root causes that underpin their priority issues in their police department. We see a lot of companies and organizations putting out statements, many who've never waded into this area before, showing support for Black Lives Matter and other racial fairness and equity. What role can they play in other institutions joining them and working with cities and police departments and community groups to create the dialogue that's going to be needed to help heal some of this stuff and to get people moving forward. Companies are part of the community too. And, you know, they bring various voices to the table. So they have their employees and they have their customer base. So these days, the voices of activists and change advocates may seem like the louder voices. While those perspectives are important, it's also important for other audiences to share their expectations of what policing should look like. And police departments want to hear from diverse segments. So as you said, you know, we're seeing a lot of companies making public statements against racial inequality, and they're also making some significant financial pledges to fight racism and support Black communities. And I think that's a huge win for society. So companies are seeing themselves as a force for good and a force for driving change. So You know, many of their employees and customers, though, are not seeing the cops as a force for good right now. And that's okay. As a company, you don't have to be pro-cop. But if companies hide or stay on the sidelines right now when it comes to this big issue of police reform and that fact that police community relations is suffering, I think they're missing an opportunity to truly be a force for good. So you can be on the sidelines or you can engage and not just with the platitudes or public statements or photo ops or even by giving money to someone else to engage, but to engage themselves. So I'll say this again. I mean, companies don't need to pick sides. They don't need to be pro cop, but they can brand themselves as pro community and just involve cops in the discussion Because at the end of the day, our society really, you know, we need police departments and we all acknowledge that police departments are having some serious issues, but rather than abandoning them and telling them to go fix themselves, 
companies or organizations have an opportunity to help police departments do better and get better and help improve police community relations and the social contract that we we all are seeing is, is breaking down. So I think companies and businesses are stakeholders, too, in impacting this public safety conversation. When we talk about police using uh, the trying to reform some of their practices and things, corporations may be able to serve as a model for some of that stuff. You mentioned change management before. That's obviously something corporations have been skilled at for decades and have the expertise needed. How? What are some other skills companies can share with police that they could stand to learn from? You know, there are a lot of good ideas being discussed right now. It's great to see that. And the question is going to be how police departments carry out these reforms. And corporations and businesses can offer a lot of unique expertise to help the policing profession with the how, right? We can take what corporations are doing well right now, you know, play to their existing strengths and transfer those skills from the business world to the policing world. So here's how corporations and businesses can weigh in. Ben, you had mentioned change management. We all have heard of corporate executives successfully managing a corporate turnaround with great change management skills, right? And I would bet the police chiefs and command staff across the country would appreciate the peer-to-peer mentorship from corporate executives that have gone through tough times within their own organizations, So those mindsets and strategies and leadership skills can be so helpful to the law enforcement profession right now. I'll give another example. We want our cops to have a protect and serve attitude, a customer service mindset to connect with their customer base, which is the community. And there are so many companies out there that have built a strong culture around service. How about we have those Corporate teams offer their expertise to help a police department learn that service mindset. And you can help address one of those root causes, and and that's police culture, and help them integrate a more service-oriented mentality. And, you know, another example, companies can offer their HR talent to help guide police departments on more modern recruitment, hiring, and retention practices which again, get at some of these root causes behind the issues police departments are facing. So these processes in police departments have not evolved as quickly as it has in the private sector and really needs an upgrade. Police departments can really benefit from learning the cutting edge practices from the business world. So, I mean, companies have specific programs focused on developing talent which can help police departments continuously develop their officers over the course of their long careers. And companies also have, you know, they're, they're also great at handling when someone needs to be performance managed out and what that process looks like. And you can translate that into managing out the bad apples in a police department. So there are many opportunities for corporations and businesses to engage and have a seat at the table as a stakeholder in public safety, I mean, they, they offer so much expertise just in their employee base and corporations can go beyond just pledging dollars and actually serve as, you know, by providing this expertise, they can serve as a meaningful contribution to building out this public safety ecosystem. This has been such an interesting conversation. I'm going to take you out here with this last question. 
You recently held a meeting between young people, Gen Z, and millennials, police executives, and others to help start conversations between these groups. Can you talk a little bit about that event, how it went, and what needs to happen next? And then second to that, how important are young people to bringing about the reforms we've been talking about? And why do they give you hope for the future? We co-hosted a national conversation between college students and young adults uh, representing 25 states and Guam with law enforcement executives from the West Coast, East Coast, and the Midwest. We took care to convene a diverse set of perspectives to reflect America. And, you know, to be honest, many of the students had anxiety about participating because they didn't want to talk to the police. They were dealing with a lot of pain and anger related to what's going on. But I was impressed by their bravery in facing their discomfort and deciding to be open-minded and joining the session. And I also applaud the law enforcement officials that joined because it's a really busy time for them right now. We were about three weeks into all the protests and police departments are under intense scrutiny. So, But it was important for the chiefs that participated to dialogue with our young people. So the session was designed to be a two-way discussion. So we had everyone's faces on Zoom video. And the young people asked questions about race and police accountability. And the police chiefs asked the young people about their priorities and perspectives on what needs to change. And it went really well. The students afterwards shared that they were surprised at how open and vulnerable the chiefs were in talking about the issues in their own police departments and talking about their personal lives as well. So I think the students and the young people saw the human side behind the badge on that call rather than some government authority figure. And some of the young people said they were moved by the conversation. And there were some myths that were debunked as well around how policing works. But the biggest win with that conversation was that there was a shifting of hearts and minds. It's hard to hate up close and it's hard to stay angry when there's vulnerability and transparency and honesty on display. So there's something to be said about human connection and these small group dialogues, even though it was held over Zoom, it really created an openness amongst these young people to critically think about the issues. And the police chiefs had a chance to get a national perspective from this younger generation that they normally wouldn't have access to. And those chiefs, they absolutely loved it. And they asked to be invited again. We just ran out of time on that session and it was 90 minutes. You'll be doing more of those, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it starts with honest conversation, really, you know, listening and learning. And then we can roll up our sleeves to do the hard work for reform and transformation. So if you look at who is protesting out there, the vocal ones, many of them are millennials and younger. They are an important part of the national conversation happening right now. And, you know, we were proud to facilitate the exchange because it infused, I would say, a glimmer of hope into what these days, you know, seem like a very long and challenging road ahead. This is difficult work, but I am hopeful. And that one conversation infused a lot of hope in me personally. And so, like you said, I mean, we plan on hosting many more of these virtual conversations with different types of audiences in the future. Well, we'd love to hear about those and take part of them when we can too as well. I know you're going to be right in the middle of all this great work that's going to have to take place. And 
we look forward to hearing and uh, seeing what you guys do too. Thank you so much, Florence, for taking time. And I wish you the best of luck in the future as we move forward here. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for the opportunity to share. We hope you enjoyed this episode. The Principled Podcast is brought to you by LRN. At LRN, our mission is to inspire principled performance in global organizations by helping them foster winning ethical cultures rooted in sustainable values. Please visit us at LRN.com to learn more. And if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to leave us a review.